is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Thursday, November 3rd, 2022, and today will be better than yesterday. Producing from the Sarah Abbott Studios is Sarah Abbott. Taylor Schwink is working from the Schwink Studios in the foothills of Connecticut, and I'm Buster, only working in Philadelphia. First off, good morning, guys. How are you each doing? Buster, we talked before the show. The wall is here. The the, the grind is officially set in. I'm worn out. I, you know, I was hoping for the Phillies to just wrap it on up. That's what we root for here. We don't root for teams. We root for short series. And Sarah, wearing a Phillies cap today because you're a three-week lifelong Phillies fan. Yeah, you know, yesterday was tough. That was that was a tough, tough day for all the lifelong Phillies fans. And I'm sure for the actual lifelong Phillies fans, it was even tougher. So my heart goes out to them. Um, I am wearing a Phillies hat because when I won or when I wore the Phillies hat, they won. So you got to mix up the mojo, you know, I got to spice it up. So that loss yesterday, hand up, that was on me. Um, yeah. I should have wore the Phillies hat. See, Sarah, along those lines, uh, you know, before yesterday's game, we meet with the managers before every game. And so we sat down with Rob Thompson and Eduardo Perez, our colleague, looked over at him and said, hey, uh, you know, what was your conversation like with the barber? And, and he noticed that Rob got a haircut yesterday. And Eduardo said in the booth, toward the end of the no-hitter, like, uh, like if I'm – and he didn't say this on air, uh, but he was like, if I'm Rob Thompson, I'm not getting my haircut for anything after what happened in game three. <laughs> and Eduardo was laughing at himself with that. He wasn't criticizing Rob. Uh, because he was like, boy, you got to keep it going, right? You got to roll through it when when you have a good thing going and they got no hits. So maybe we're going to walk in there today and Rob will have like hair taped to his head someplace trying to put it all back together, right? That was a bold move, Mr. Thompson, <laughs> respectfully. That was a very bold move. <laughs> yeah, so it was a very unusual game last night. Of course, it's only the second no-hitter in World Series history, but I got to tell you, you know, I, I – I uh, was, you know, watched the game and then did the post-game interviews and we did the post-game show. And I sat up with Dan Schulman afterward, after the game, and I'm like, you know, when I'm thinking about it from beginning to end, what I saw from one team's pitching staff against another team in a postseason game, that was the most dominant performance I've ever seen. Like, there wasn't a moment when you thought, wow, the Phillies almost got a hit there. It was incredible. Like what we saw last night from the first inning to the ninth inning, I've never seen before. And I've covered no hitters by David Wells and David Cohn and Jake Arietta. I've never seen a team completely dominated in the way that the Phillies were last night. And this was just 24 hours after they put on this unbelievable show with the five home runs and seven runs against the Astros. It was pretty incredible. Uh, and, and you know, it feels like I'm still processing it as we go in terms of how great Christian Javier was. All right. Uh, early on, Aaron Nola, the Phillies, was pitching just as well as Christian Javier, you know, keeping the Astros off the board. There were runners on base when this happened, the top of the second. Vasquez running as the 2-2 is swung on and missed. Got him to go after a down-and-away curveball and big back-to-back strikeouts for Nola as the Astros strand a couple. Yeah, Aaron Nola had his best velocity of the season and really of his entire career in that start last night. He was spinning the ball well. It was still 0-0, top of the fourth inning when this happened. First and second two down, and now Aledemus Diaz hits a weak ground ball to short. Stott will charge and make the throw on the run. And the Astros will leave a couple of men on as Diaz is retired. That, of course, is the voice of Dan Schulman, who's the play-by-play man on ESPN Radio for this World Series. But as great as Nola was early in the game, as well as he was throwing, wasn't close to what Christian Javier was doing. Here was the bottom of the fourth. Two and two the count with two down and the bases empty. And the pitch is swing and a miss. A fastball up, and Christian Javier strikes out the side. Impressive, impressive stuff. We are at the end of four, and there's no score in this game. And I must say, it, it, it wasn't like you were sitting there thinking, oh, my God, he's pitching a no-hitter. It was the feeling of, right now, the Phillies are not seeing the fastball at all. And we'll get into that when we speak with Jessica Mendoza about what separates Christian Javier's fastball from those of other pitchers. In the top of the fifth inning, 
the Astros broke through. And the first pitch to Alvarez hits him. He just hit him, drilled him with a 99-mile-an-hour fastball. And Alvarez, I, I don't know if it got him in the back or the side. He is heading down to first, but he is feeling it, and he is favoring it as the Astros take a one to nothing lead. Guys, I don't know if you could hear it on that radio call, but did you hear Alvarez shouting in pain as the ball hit him? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was so struck. Dan was you know, concerned about his condition and his well-being because he didn't know where it hit him. And, you know, is, is Alvarez okay? You could tell the Astros players were more concerned about taking the lead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because Framber Valdez was like, yeah. They were hyped. They were they were so pumped. <laughs> they didn't care. The, yeah, they right. Exactly. And they also knew that Alex Bregman was coming up next. Here's the 0-2, and he hits it the other way. He slices it to right, and it's down and all the way to the fence. Altuve in to score. Pena in to score. Alvarez stops at third. It's a two-run double for Alex Bregman, and the Astros have a 3-0 lead. And they would extend that lead to 5 to nothing, and then the story became Christian Javier and the Astros' bullpen. Here was Javier in the bottom of the fifth. Here's the one-two again, and it's strike three called. A fastball at the knees. Stott didn't like it, but it looked like it was a strike. And that is five consecutive strikeouts for Christian Javier. It carried on into the sixth. Five-nothing Astros in the bottom of the sixth, and the three-two is swung on and hit to short. Another ground ball. Pena up with it, and that is six hitless innings for Christian Javier could very well be likely is the end of his night and what an outing he has had yeah at that point he had 97 pitches and as he was coming off the mound and walking into the dugout Martin Maldonado Dusty Baker and others greeted him uh he was told that he was done for the night I know on social media there was a lot of conversation about boy he should have been left in to potentially pursue the no hitter there was no thought in the Astros clubhouse, in their dugout, that he was potentially going to finish that game. Dusty Baker went to his bullpen. Brian Abreu in the seventh. And again, the 2-2 and a swing and a miss. Got him with a slider. And Brian Abreu with an overpowering inning as he strikes out the Phillies in order here in the bottom of the seventh. Rafael Montero through the eighth. Gene Segura. And he swings, lines the ball to right field, but it'll carry out to Tucker who makes the catch on that sinking line drive. And it's a three-up, three-down, bottom of the eighth. And Ryan Presley took over for the bottom of the ninth inning. And the pitch from Presley. A swing and a ground ball to third. Bregman has it. The throw to first, and that'll do it. The Astros even up the World Series with a 5 to nothing win tonight. And four of their pitchers combined to no hit. The Philadelphia Phillies as Presley finishes off what Christian Javier started. And we got a brand new World Series all tied up at two. It was the first no-hitter in the World Series since Don Larson threw one in 1956, pitching for the Yankees against the Brooklyn Dodgers. And right afterward, I spoke with Christian Vasquez about what occurred. Christian is the first catcher in 66 years, the first in Yogi Berra to catch a no-hitter. What was that like? Special, you know, special. I think the job we did, uh, we played for this, and I think it's going to be special, and we're going to remember this game forever. Tell me what the ninth inning was like. Did you feel tension, a lot of anxiety? Well, we're facing a good team, you know. It's a great, great lineup, and, you know, we started this uh, before the game, and, you know, we, we execute every pitch. What about Christian Javier tonight? Special, special kid. I think the best possible I ever see catching. Uh, you can call it any time you want, and he's going to be uh, effective. That's the way he is, and, you know, he's a very special kid. What separates his fastball? What makes it so difficult for hitters to hit? I think the vertical going up. Is so it's electric fastball, and I think it's very it's going up. It's, you know, you're never going to see a fastball of him going down and, and that's how, that's how he, he gave money. All right, he had a no-hitter after six innings when he came out of the game. What did you think about that? We got a special bullpen, too. You know, it's, I think that the best bullpen in baseball right now, and, and we can close your eye, and they're going to do the job, and, and they did. Who's got the momentum in this series now, two all? It's tight. You know, we're, we're playing good ball. We play good ball today, and, and 
you know, we, we answered back from yesterday and, you know, it's going to be awesome, awesome series. Christian, thanks. Thank Congratulations. You. Thank you, guys. Right after that, I spoke with Christian Javier through the Astros interpreter. Christian, you're part of the first no-hitter in the World Series in 66 years. What are your emotions? Primer no-hitter in the Series Mundial in 66 years. What are your emotions now? How do you feel? Bastante, bastante contento, ¿sabes? Me siento muy bien contento y como siempre, dando la gracia a papá Dios por esa tremenda oportunidad que nos, que nos dan y ese tremendo éxito que nos ayuda a tener. Yeah, very happy. Feel, feel very happy. A lot of joy right now and always thanking God for giving me this opportunity and for being able to accomplish this. What do you feel like you were doing well tonight? ¿Qué pensaste que estaba haciendo bien hoy? ¿Sabes? Me mantuve atacando la zona, estaba muy concentrado, ¿sabes? Manteniendo la calma y sobre todo agarrándome a papá Dios, pidiéndole mucho a papá Dios que me ayude a tener ese éxito de hoy que tanto... Yeah, I think I just continue attacking the strike zone and always praying to God, praying to God, hopefully help me today. And I knew the team needed this win, and thanks to God, we're able to accomplish it. You had that no hitter through six innings until you're coming out of the game. How did you feel about that? Tenía no hitter la primera seis entradas cuando te dijeron que iba a salir del juego. ¿Cómo te sentiste? Normal, sabes. Yo sabía la cantidad de pichos que tenía. Sabes, sabía que ya Dotti entendía que no debíamos necesitar bullpen. Y me sentí súper bien, gracias a Dios. Sabe que sé que tenemos un tremendo bullpen y sé que ellos podían hacer el trabajo. Yeah, I felt, I felt fine. Um, I knew I had a, a lot of pitches there. Dusty told me I was going to come out of the game. I was ready for it. Obviously, we have really good bullpen, and thankfully, they were able to complete the job. Last one. What was it like to have your family here to watch this tonight? ¿Cómo se sintió para ti tener tu familia aquí ver ver esto hoy? Bien, bien, bien contento, ¿sabes? Algo que yo nunca voy a en mi vida. Y más cuando se logra algo que yo que yo me pidieron, ¿sabes? Para mí ese es el mejor regalo que yo le puedo dar a mi familia. ¿Sabes? Ellos me dijeron que, que el día de hoy iba a tirar unos gires. Y siempre, simplemente yo mantuve la fe y salí confiado. Y por eso puse todas las manos para Dios. Y gracias a Dios sucedió. Yeah, very happy. Obviously, being able to have them here means the world to me. Uh, they asked, they told me they wanted to be here, and this is the best gift that I could give them. They told me yesterday I was going to throw a no-hitter. And thanks to God, who just held on to God today and had a lot of faith and I was able to do it. Christian, thanks. Back to you. Rob Thompson was asked about being able to bounce back after being no hit. I think it's the third time in history, right? Or second time in history. But anyway, um, you know, we were no hit earlier in the year in, in New York against the Mets. And we came back the next day and won. So these guys, they got a short memory. And they're going to go home tonight and gonna go to bed and come back in here tomorrow and prep and compete like they always do. Hey, Rob, even though you were on the wrong end of this, does the historical significance of it settle in? For me? I mean, loss to loss. That's the way I kind of look at it. Yeah, people have asked why Rob Thompson is so popular with the players, why the players like having as their manager. Well, that was why, because he's so understated, and that's the way he is every day. He's so low-key. He's not going to react on anything, overreact. Uh, and we heard that last night. We also heard it from Kyle Schwarber. Uh, when reporters were in the uh, Phillies clubhouse after the game, he was asked about the historic nature of what occurred, and he said, I don't give a bleep. And, <laughs> and he said it in such a matter-of-fact way as well. So the Phillies turning the page going into game five tonight. Dusty Baker, the Astros manager, Talked about Christian Javier. You know, he was electric, and, uh, you know, he threw the ball up, down, and that shows you that the best pitch in baseball is still a well-located fastball. And, uh, you know, he was calm and cool, and uh, uh, Christian Vasquez called a, you know, a great game for him. And uh, I think that's the first time I've seen two guys with the same first name as a battery. So maybe... <laughs> Maybe that was part of it. Dusty talked about Christian Javier doing this with the Astros down 2-1 to in the World Series after being shut out in Game 3. I had heard an interview by Joe Torre that Game 4 is, is a, pitiful, a pivotal game in, the, in a seven-game series. And, uh, you know, that's, that's why we kind of wanted Javi pitching that, you know, that fourth game. And, uh, uh, you know, like, I mean, the guy was cool as if it was – June or July, and uh, you know that's how he is. And uh, I was glad that his, I heard his mom and dad were here from Dominican and got to see him pitch. And uh, you know it's always great when you do something in front of your 
your folks. And uh, I mean, this is a world stage here. From people from all over the world are watching this, and uh, he certainly put himself on the map. There have been three no hitters now in the postseason. The first was Larson, and then the second was Roy Halladay against the Cincinnati Reds in Citizens Bank Park more than a decade ago. And the manager of that Cincinnati Reds team was Dusty Baker. He was asked about being part of two postseason no-hitters. Yeah, I was on the other end in this ballpark. I mean, that's what's strange about life. And I I remember being on the other end of that. It was the seventh inning, and it seemed like it was the second inning. And I looked up on the board in the seventh inning already, and like, you know, then you're trying not to be no-hit, and then you're trying to win the ball game. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty remarkable. I've been on on both ends and here for two out of three. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, if I may make a recommendation, Stanford, Stephen, the bear for all the college football investors out there. We're going to record that just after we finish this podcast. And uh, they always put on a good show. So check them out. If you're looking to make a couple dollars on the college football slate, Stanford, Stephen, the bear, listen, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus. A Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Jumping into the numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. And Hembo is Paul Amikidi. He's a researcher at ESPN, but anybody who listens to the podcast know that beyond that, he is a huge Phillies fan. And I got to say, Hembo, you probably have had this dramatic swing of emotions over the last 36 hours. <laughs> it's been really, really bizarre. Game three in Philadelphia was practically unlike anything that I have ever seen. The way that the Phillies uh, ambushed early in that game, like the, the, obviously the high of emotion that the stadium had for all nine innings just comes to a screeching, crashing halt yesterday. I, as you can imagine, know so many people that went to the game and they just felt like they wasted so much time and so much money. I guess if, there, if you take any consolation in a loss, it's that you saw something historic. But keep in mind, Buster, this was a Phillies team for which opposing starters had a 10.62 ERA against uh, incidents in Bank Park start, uh, entering yesterday. And so the idea here is that the Phillies have obviously had a great game plan to chase these starting pitchers. And obviously nothing could have been further from the truth yesterday. I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned that they didn't hit. Obviously it affected me deeply emotionally, but more objectively, it was so bizarre that, you know, the, the day before, teeing off on all these Lance McCullers breaking balls, obviously Christian Javier comes in with the precise game plan to, uh, you know, to a, a, a sort of a Phillies lineup that had uh, – 
you know, really slowed down their bats the game before. It worked to perfection. Sometimes you just got to tip your cap and call someone your daddy. All right, take off your Phillies cap for us for a moment, okay? And go pure analyst. I, I, you know, landed on this late last night after processing it and thinking about what we just saw. Uh, I do think there's a big difference between one pitcher throwing a no-hitter and having combined no-hitter, but from innings one through nine, especially with what we saw in game three, as dominant, uh, more dominant than any uh, pitching performance for a team that I've ever seen. What do you? What about you? I agree with that wholeheartedly, especially when you consider the the context, when you consider the stakes, and you consider the fact that this team was down two to one in the freaking World Series. This game was not played on April the 29th. The Phillies at no point yesterday made any noise whatsoever. The hardest hit ball was a, a, a sort of a Gene Segura line drive in the eighth inning that ended that inning. There was nothing else that was remotely close. I think there were a total of four hard hit balls in the game, a couple of lazy fly balls, a ground ball, and then that Segura line out. I don't ever – I mean, obviously, if, if the Astros had had like 20 or 22 strikeouts, it would have been one thing. But to keep the ball off the barrel like that for nine innings against uh, this Phillies lineup, which has been just so good, was stunning. I think when you give the context of the World Series, uh, it was about as dominant an effort as I have ever seen with my own two eyes. All right. If I remember correctly, you had the Phillies in five coming into the World Series. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to happen. Your prediction has been blown out faster than mine, although I, I, I hope that you go back and burn the tapes of my interviews here in Philadelphia yesterday morning where I talked about the <laughs> Phillies' momentum and how that'll be difficult to overcome. Uh, tell me how you're feeling going forward in this series. Um, reasonably well, to be totally honest with you. I think Game 5 in Philadelphia is, I mean, is going to be raucous tonight. I'm going to be there. It's going to be amazing. I, I have a hard time putting the Phillies at a disadvantage no matter what, so long as they're playing in their home ballpark. And even though Zach Wheeler did not look good in game two, Zach Wheeler has been an outstanding pitcher this postseason, an outstanding pitcher uh, this year and last in totality, one of the very best in the sport. He is pitching on extra rest. We know the numbers when he pitches on extra rest are extraordinary. He'll get the ball in game six. So look, I'm reasonably confident that we'll at minimum get to a seventh game, in which case anything could happen. But I think the Phillies have an awfully good chance in game five because they're playing at home where we know that's made a huge difference for them historically. And then they had the best starting pitcher in the series, getting the ball on extra rest in game six. For my money, that's a, for a team that won 87 games that has no business being here in all candor, that's about as much as you could ask for. All right. What did the Phillies do against Justin Verlander in game one? I'm going to take you inside the film room here and lay out the exact game plan they're going to employ tonight based upon that kind of success, Buster. So Justin Verlander allowed six hits in that game. All six hits. All six. Glove side. That's inner half to lefties. That's outer half to righties. In total, he's allowed 19 hits in three postseason starts. Buster, 15 of those 19 have been thrown to his glove side. So it's pretty simple. Verlander is not commanding that half of the plate right now. And the Phillies took advantage. They split the plate in half. And I expect they'll employ that exact same game, uh, game plan against him tonight based upon the fact that it wasn't a blip. It's been the entire postseason. He has had a very difficult time commanding his pitch's glove side. I think if you watch the tape, I'll send it to you after, the, uh, after our interview, you'll see that's the case, and I think that's a massive factor in tonight's game against Justin Verlander. <laughs> uh, to me, the big question about tonight's game and Verlander's performance, like specifically within the at-bats, is whether or not they get to his high fastball. Like mm. fastballs in the upper third of the zone because I agree with you. I think that's what he's going to do. I mentioned, uh, you know, the other day that there had been discussion after Verlander's last start about why they went away from attacking with a fastball as they did first time through the order and went more off speed in the second time through the order. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And based upon what we saw in game three, in which they teed off of uh, on Lance McCullers' soft stuff, and based upon what we saw in game four, in which they had no prayer to square up uh, Christian Javier's fastball. Like, the Phillies fouled off 27 of his fastballs. They couldn't square up anything. And I absolutely agree with you. If Justin Verlander has his wits about him, he will live with that fastball early in this game, establish it, and make the Phillies prove that they can square that up based upon what we saw from Lance McCullers in game three. And I also think from a more big picture perspective here, Buster, Justin Verlander has made some enormous World Series starts in his career. At what point is he going to give us a signature moment? Like, not, not to be crass, but Justin Verlander has not yet won a game in the World Series. He's 0-6. He's made eight starts in the World Series, and in none of them, in zero of those eight, Buster, he has walked off the mound in which his team had the lead. There are 54 pitchers that have started more than five World Series games. He's the only one with an ERA north of six. Justin Verlander has objectively been awful in a representative sample size in the World Series. Those are the facts. 
So we'll see if uh, he sort of flips that around tonight. But my expectation is that Dusty Baker will have a shorter leash on him uh, than he had in game one. And that's in large part because that Astros bullpen right now is absolutely terrifying. Well, and that's uh, I do wonder if the conversation going in will be, look, Justin, you've made a career of, of throwing into the seventh, eighth, the ninth inning of throwing complete games. Just throw your best pitch, your fastball at the top of the zone uh, for as you know as long as you can, and maybe that's mm-hmm. three and a third, maybe it's four, maybe it's four and a third, because we have this unbelievable group of relievers behind you who are, generally speaking, pretty rested, and they've been pretty great. Also, the Astros bullpen right now has allowed four earned runs in 47 innings this postseason. Their bullpen has been unbelievable. What, what, what Dusty Baker should do tonight in Game 5 is pretend that Justin Verlander is actually Clayton Kershaw, right? We know Clayton Kershaw has had a very difficult time sustaining success in postseason starts. What he should do is, look, you're responsible for the order two times through. Live with that fastball. You know you can uh, live above the above the barrel on that pitch. The Phillies struggled mightily with it yesterday, and then hand the ball to this ridiculous bullpen. Get me through the order twice. But after that, I could see uh, Justin Verlander running into problems, and I could see Dusty Baker uh, making that mistake. Look, if we're to be totally honest, Dusty Baker has mismanaged his bullpen in this series to some degree, and has a history of doing that. I'm fascinated to see what the, the length of Justin Verlander's leash. I think he uh, got to pitch too long in game one. I think Lance McCullers got to pitch too long in game three. We'll see what Dusty Baker does tonight. All right. Well, uh, I do not want to see in the evening news uh, being the guy who was grabbed by security as you ran across the field, overtaken by your Philly Phantom tonight, Hembo. Please just do do me that one favor, okay? Buster, that's not going to be me. That's going to be my friend John. Don't you worry. (laughs) All right, Hembo. Have fun. Later, friends. Jessica Mendoza is an analyst for ESPN, and she's working the World Series on ESPN Radio alongside Dan Schulman and Eduardo Perez. And Jess, uh, I, I mentioned at the top of the show that it, it's it took me time to really try to process exactly what we saw last night. And where I landed was, from beginning to end, the most dominant uh, pitching performance of any team over the course of nine innings, especially within the context of what we saw from the Phillies in game three. What do you think? Well, that's exactly it. It's just the the 24 hours. And also just shows you the beauty of the game, right? I mean, all day long, we're doing predictions. You're going on shows. You're watching MLB Net. Whatever it is you're, you're watching, listening to, being a part of, everyone's like, oh, now here come the Phillies. They're going to sweep it home. We won't even go back to Houston. They're just going to crush. And now you're facing number four for Houston. It just felt like this entire role that was happening and boom shut the door can't even get a hit i mean that to me it just shows like first of all how none of us know anything (laughs) it's gonna possibly happen but also just like christian javier in that moment understanding the importance of course but also like what we talked about his nickname el reptil like he is the snake that's what dusty baker told us his nickname since he was younger because he's cold-blooded he literally got on that mound in front of 40,000 plus that booed and yelled and screamed and just absolutely tore up that Phillies lineup. All right. So you said, you know, I mean, all the predictions are wrong. You actually had a correct prediction yesterday. I asked you before the game who you got in game four and you were like Astros because of Javier. Now you're a really nice person. And I, you know, initially, cause you would just talk to Javier and I thought, you know, part of that is, is that she really loved her conversation with Javier. And that's part of the reason why, like, you know, people, as we've talked about in the podcast, you know, who do you root for? You root for, uh, you know, good games and you root for good stuff to happen to good people. And along those lines, I was wondering how much of that was what you were thinking, because you got to know him a little bit and you got it right. I mean, he was totally dominant. What helped me get an understanding of how he was going to perform was obviously, I mean, you look at how he finished the last month and a half, of course, and the numbers went back, watched a couple starts. When I saw how well that elevated fastball, they called it like an invisible, it's not 92, 93 miles an hour, which when you see the swing and miss, you know, and into some really great teams on a pitch that's 92, 93 and elevated, you understand that that's high spin. You understand that that ball has got some serious late movement. 
And when you look at this Phillies lineup, that's exactly the recipe. It's the same with the Astros, too. If you can consistently get that fastball at the top of the zone, have that spin, that swing and miss type spin, you're going to have success. Um, it's when you miss like, you know, three inches below that. And that's when the Phillies are ap- absolutely going to tear you up. And the thing with Javier, too, you know, his mom and dad, Dominican Republic, you know, first time, you know, they're in the stands, they're able to watch, they'd be a part of it, you know, just, you know, being away from home. There's just so much backstory with Christian Javier. And it kind of just felt like the stars were aligning for a really, really special night. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious about, I want to talk about his fastball and what separates it. And I got some great texts from some uh, big league managers about that last night. But it was very interesting, Jess. I was watching him, you know, closely as you were, and he was so implacid. Like, he was so calm on the mound. And the only time that you sort of saw him break from character, so to speak, was when he would look over at the Astros dugout. And I don't know this for sure because they didn't have a chance to check it last night. But I'm pretty sure he's looking at Framber Valdez sitting in that uh, up the top of the stairs at the end of the visitor's dugout, almost like he was connecting with his friend. I mean, you were there, and it, it feels like that Framber Valdez and and Christian Javier are like the odd couple in terms of personality. You know, as when Framber Valdez threw great in game, game two, I was waiting to talk to him uh, with Marley Rivera and Jose Altuve was watching him do an interview, and he just started laughing. And I was like, what's up? And he goes, he says everything that pops into his head. He just spews out every thought that he has talking about Framber. And Christian Javier is like the complete opposite personality. No, exactly. No, and that's, that's exactly it. it. It's like that couple. It's like Alex Bregman and Aaron Nola being roommates in college. Like you couldn't find two different personalities. And when you're around Framber Valdez, and I was yesterday talking to him about Christian Javier. I mean, he's that prankster. He's the one that keeps it light. He's, you know, roaming around. And Julia Morales, who's been a reporter for the Houston Astros, was telling me throughout the entire season, Framber just took Christian under his wing and not just this season, but since they've been, you know, they've come up together and he's like that guy. In fact, before the no hitter that he threw with the seven, no hit innings, he threw back in June. It was Framber that had told him, Hey, you need to keep your elbow up, really get behind the baseball. He was like coaching him up and took all the credit after the no hitter and was like, yeah, that's my boy. That's my boy. It's like a son, but it's so important in between Framber, Christian Javier, Jose Arquiti, and Luis Garcia. The four of them are always together. And it's like a family, especially because a lot of them ha- don't have their family with them. So about his fastball, I texted you know, the, the, these managers during the course of the game and just asked, you know, why is it that hitters struggle with the fastball? Because when you look at his average velocity, you know, 93.9 miles per hour during the regular season, it was that number is fairly pedestrian, ranks 30th out of 72 pitchers with at least 140 innings. But uh, what these managers are saying is, is that he has an unusual uh, arm slot because he, he's not sidearm, but he's not over the top either. He's kind of in between. And the way that he turns his body you know, setting up on the first base side of the rubber, uh, right handed pitcher. He turns his body, and as he starts his delivery, he's in a slow tempo, and they say that once he extends his arm from that point forward, he has a short angle of release, and it speeds up dramatically. So from the hitter's perspective, uh, first off, it's tough to see the ball because he's throwing crossfire, turning his back to the hitter a little bit, and then his arm speeds through his delivery in a way that hitters are not expecting. And it's clear from the reaction, you know, this better than I do because you hit and I didn't Uh, it it is something where they are trying to catch up and they just don't. No, that's exactly what it is. And we see that with, it makes me so happy too. When it's 92 buster and you're late, that tells you there's deception in the delivery, exactly what you're talking about, the release point and high spin, because the spin gives you that deception as well. Because instead of it, you know, losing plane and basically natural gravity doing what it's supposed to do, meeting your bat path where you think it's going to meet, it stays and holds that plane. And between those two things, 92 looks like 102 by the reaction of the hitters and how they swing. Yeah, it, it was impressive to see for sure uh and as the game was going along you know and we're all processing what he's doing dan uh started talking about the question of whether or not 
at some point, uh, Dusty Baker probably needed to start thinking about whether or not he might potentially start him in game seven. And there's going to be a lot of conversation about this in the next 72 hours. Based on what we've seen in games three and four, Lance McCullers gets pounded by the Phillies, five homers allowed, and then Javier throws six no-hit innings. Uh, who are you starting in game seven, Jess? Why are you even asking the question? Like, <laughs> I feel like that was decided in, like, the second inning. Like, I mean, it's, it's, you'd have to be, I, I would be pulled if I was an Astros fan, honestly, a baseball fan, like you, you run Lance McCullers Jr. back out there again. Come on. Like, and I get it. Like all the talk about pitch tipping, what I, nothing to do with that. Everything to do with the stuff was there. You don't have an understanding of how he's going to throw unless he changes his entire game plan, especially against left-handed batters. I'm talking about McCullers Jr. And even then. Christian Javier is a better pitcher right now. Like he's not their number four starter. I mean, I would put him what number two, you know, I mean, he's ahead of Justin Verlander for me. I mean, the way that he is throwing right now. And again, I'll say it, that I love the El Reptil. Like that is something we see it with Ranger Suarez on the flip side, the ability to stay low heartbeat, just totally doesn't matter in this environment, on this stage, in this point in the season, like he's your dude. Did you have any problem with Dusty Baker taking Javier with a no-hitter in progress after six innings? No, not at all. I would have the inning before. (laughs) We had the discussion, and I'm just like, really? Like, And I get it. Like, you're thinking about game seven. Dan was on the other side. Like, you know, you got this great bullpen. Take him out now. But at that point, I think it was at 67 pitches, like, heading into the fifth inning. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, it just – I had, like, Blake Snell, like, flashbacks all over again. Like, a dude is dealing, and you want to take him out to think about later. Like, there's no way. Now, as he started to get into the 90-pitch range, you understand how little he's thrown. And not even thinking about game seven, but more importantly, knowing the dudes that you had to hand it over. And listening to Christian Javier, you talked to him after the game, but listening to him, you know, Prescott, everything after the game, he knew that after that inning, he was done. And I think having that understanding and knowing what was behind him, as you saw the three dudes that came after him, they had it in the bag. Yeah, they absolutely. Uh, After the game, Kyle Schwarber was asked by reporters about, you know, the historic nature of last night's game. And his response was, I don't give a (laughs) <laughs> it was so good. It was so good. <laughs> like just because that, and he sets the tone. Buster, you've been with me. We've talked. You had your own conversation of who is the straw that stirs the drink for that clubhouse in the Phillies. It's Kyle Schwarber. And the fact that he not only said that, meant it, move on. Tomorrow's a new, all the cliches, but Kyle actually has the ability to change the personality and reaction of how everyone I'm sure feels in that clubhouse. And that was like the perfect defining moment of it. Yeah, uh, there's no doubt about it. All right, uh, speaking of game five tonight, the Phillies will be trying to to bounce back against Justin Verlander, future Hall of Famer. But just going to this game, I feel like there's more pressure on Justin than any other player in the park. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, just the amount, I, I would say, thank goodness the Astros won last night because I kind of felt like, shoot, if Justin gets the ball, it's the entire season on the line. You know that he's never won in a World Series game. Just everything that he struggled with and he's aware of. And, Buster, you know this, not only aware of what he's doing, but he's aware of what everyone's saying. Like, he's one of those players that's very conscious of what other people think, very conscious of what other people write. Um, wants to, it's really the last thing. I mean, he's done everything else, accomplished everything else. He'll be in the Hall of Fame. Like, he knows. But this important time that really as far as legacy is what people ultimately remember and how he has the ball going back to Houston. I just think it helps so much. that It's not the season on the line. And I'm hoping he can just deep breath, relax, learn a little bit from his teammate on just like, it doesn't matter what all of that is happening. He knows the stuff that he has and also stick with the fastball. Oh my goodness. Dicing up hitters in game one. And then he went away from it. And it was all breaking balls. It was pow, 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 which the Phillies will do as soon as that fastball was limited. And I know the conversation after Verlander's start uh, earlier in the series was about why they got away from that approach with high fastballs, which is why, Jess, I think tonight the big question for me is uh, whether or not the Phillies get to the high fastball. We saw them trying to get to Javier's high fastball last night. They could not. 
tonight they'll be swinging at Verlander's high fastball. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's the pitch that, you know, they started to get to. And I think a little bit was because it just didn't have the same located, like he was locating it perfectly top of the zone and, and it doesn't have the same deception. It's got more velocity, but it's a different pitch than Christian Javier's. It, it just is. And if you ask the Phillies, they'll tell you the same. So the thing with Verlander is he's got to pitch if he gets second time and yeah, I doubt he gets there, but third time through the lineup, he's got to absolutely understand of what to, to keep the Phillies off balance and make that elevated fastball what it is. Meaning you go with the breaking ball more, even as a show pitch, not to hit down in the zone, even locate the fastball somewhere out of the zone that isn't up so that when you do, it looks five miles an hour faster and just a perfectly located pitch for a pitcher. All right. I think we ought to go get pizza for lunch today. What do you think? Oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. You went there. No one knows what you're talking about, but (laughs) there was no pizza to be had after the game at 1am and I am still better. So thanks for bringing it up. (laughs) Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com, and also a huge baseball fan, which is why just before we got started, she saw on our Zoom call uh, that Sarah Abbott is wearing the Phillies cap, given that uh, Sarah Abbott is a lifelong Phillies fan of three weeks. And Sarah Langs, you greatly appreciate the superstition, correct? Oh, my gosh. I love it. And, you know, I mean, Sarah is just embracing her lifelong fandom which I really, truly appreciate. But yeah, it's great. And, you know, everyone has to do their part. Game happens on the field, but part of what makes baseball so great is that everyone involved, fans, everybody who is rooting for either team seems to think they have some influence as well. So we heard from Bruce Bochy earlier in the week, uh, a moment from when you were still a super fan. Now you're a super analyst. uh, And so you can set aside some of those emotions. When you were a super fan, uh, how superstitious were you? Wow. Let's see. Well, we've had my mother on this podcast, and I'm going to begin to deflect by saying that she is so, so superstitious. But when I was a fan, I certainly had the don't talk about a no-hitter thing, which, you know, very relevant this morning, of course. And I remember my father, you know, the Mets did not have a no-hitter until 2012. And whenever a guy got through maybe three or four innings for the Mets, my father, you know, were at the game, would say, I think I smell something. I smell a no-hitter. And I'd be like, don't say it, don't say it. So (laughs) I certainly had that. But now here I am sending tweets and notes and prepping and everything for a no-hitter when it was in the sixth inning. So I promise I am past that now. Uh, Yeah, for the record, Mm -hmm. for all the people who are saying, don't if you mention a no-hitter, you'll ruin it, you'll jinx it. I think Dan Schulman mentioned the no-hitter about 60 times in the last three innings. So let's... Let's put that on record for sure. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is two. So we're talking about this no-hitter. Now it's the next day. Nobody can be mad. Except maybe Phillies fans, but we'll get there. So 
The two is for Christian Javier and Ryan Presley. So Javier started the game. Presley finished it. This was not the first time that the two of them had been involved in a combined no-hitter this year. Of course, they had the combo in New York at Yankee Stadium. That one had a slightly different cast, but Javier started and Presley finished it. So this was the 19th combined no-hitter in MLB history. Before Wednesday, the 18 combined no-hitters had involved 62 distinct pitchers. And then in one game, the two of them became the first pitchers to be part of two combined no-hitters in a career, let alone in a season. And they did it by starting and finishing the same two no-hitters. I mean, it's just incredible. Number two. Number two is, uh uh-oh, it might be two again. Sorry, everyone. I feel like I'm not supposed to do that. But you know what? Day after a no-hitter, we're going to go with it. So this (laughs) was the second time the Phillies were no-hit this year. On April 29, they faced the Mets, and five New York pitchers combined to keep the Phillies hitless. The starting pitcher in that game was Aaron Nola, who also started last night. So he became the third pitcher to start multiple games in the season where his team was no hit in the single season, joining Zach Plezak last year, who had three such games, and Jim Perry in 1973, who had two. And the amazing thing is, we've talked about Mandy Bell on this podcast. People know she covers the Guardians, and she's one of my absolute best friends. When I started realizing this might happen, I texted her and said, the please act note, because we spent so much of last season talking about this, and now it's happened again. Number one. Number one is five. So a day ago, we were talking about the fact that the Phillies offense had tied a World Series record with five home runs in a game. And then the next day, they get no hit. I had a friend text me, baseball man, and it really feels like one of those moments. This is one of those things that can only happen here, and it's such a crazy sport. This was the first time in MLB history that a team hit at least five home runs in a regular season or postseason game, and then was no hit in the next game. So we've never seen that combo of highest to lows in any back-to-back games. And Sarah, that's part of the reason why I think it took me a while, you know, and this was after the game, to really process what I had seen, in part (laughs) because, uh, as you know, it was truncated, it was fragmented because you have Javier was so great for six innings and you have the three relievers that follow. But where I landed on it at the end of the night, you know, after talking with Dan Schulman and Jessica Mendoza as we were headed to the hotel, I think it was the most dominant pitching uh, that I saw from any one through nine of any team because there was nothing, Sarah, in those nine innings where you thought, yeah, that was almost a hit or, yeah, you know, that uh, just, a, you know, he, he hit that ball hard. There, there was absolutely nothing in that game along those lines. Maybe, you know, that right field uh, line drive uh, to right field in the eighth inning um, it wasn't like in watching that live, like I thought that we actually had a chance to be a hit. Absolutely. And you said exactly what I was going to point to. So we can actually kind of quantify this only back to 2015. But they allowed the Astros an 081 expected batting average. We've talked about that stat on here. That's based on quality of contact, which is exactly what we're talking about here. Whether you have a chance of plate, whether you're hitting the ball hard, making good contact. That was the lowest in any postseason game tracked by StatCast. And Gene Segura, that eighth inning lineup, the one you're referring to, had a 9-10 expected batting average. Which means under StatCast, that combination of launch angle and exit velocity has been hit 91% of the time. But the next highest for any Philly batted ball in the entire game was 320 on a Schwarber sixth inning ground down. So they had won that statistically 
is off in the head because it would take kind of hard. But again, in the moment, the way you saw it, it didn't feel like that. But other than that, their best chance was 32%. So it's amazing we can prove that now. You know, this was 10 years ago. We just say, yeah, 100%. You're right, which you are. But now I can kind of prove it for you, too. Yeah, so the 081 expecting batting average uh, that you you mentioned, that is in the postseason. What's the lowest, or I'm not sure because I'm ambushing you with this, what's the lowest in a regular season game? So in the regular season, we have an 024 by Royals pitching on April 30th, 2015. I pulled up the box score. It was a game between the Royals and the Tigers. Danny Duffy started for the Royals, followed by Jason Frazier and Brandon Finnegan. He had seven strikeouts. My guess is there wasn't a whole lot of contact. Obviously, I'm just eyeballing the game really quickly. But there are a handful of games with slightly lower um, numbers than that, 081. But again, there's so much variance in the regular season. That's why it's stuck with postseason. But even still, that 081 is among the, uh, let's say, 35 or so lowest in any uh, overall game tracked by StackHouse. Wow. Uh, And that sets up the question, Sarah. I'm going to put you in Dusty Baker's shoes for a potential Game 7. Who are you starting, Lance McCullers or Christian Javier in short rest? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I feel like it has to be Javier on short rest. Everything we talked about with pitch selection by McCullers and everything that happened on the mound. And, I mean, it's hard to look at what they each did the last two days. I I would go with Javier. Yeah. Imagine if you're Dusty Baker and you lose the World Series in seven games and you're, you know, sitting back and, you know, uh, he loves to fish, you know, fishing and having to mull over. Uh, You know, I passed up a guy who just threw six no-hit innings and the other team had no chance. Uh, Dusty Baker has managed a long time. So has Buck Showalter, 21 years in the big leagues. Here's what he had to say about you. Oh, my gosh. Sorry to make him. I first saw she was kind of sitting there, kind of quiet and very respectful of the people in the room. This is way back, Buster. This is back when uh, baseball tonight and baseball today and back when, you know, we actually talked about baseball and didn't see who could yell the loudest and argue the most. Uh, don't get me going. So he, every once in a while, she'd just kind of chirp up and she'd say something. Everybody, the room would kind of stop. stop. It was like an EF Hutton and said, that was pretty good. Did she just say that? She had guts. She wasn't going to let anybody get in the way of her uh, love of the game and bringing what she could bring. She was, she was, she had nuggets back when nuggets were impossible to find. You know, she would come up with something and Carl would look smart and we'd all look around and say, Oh, you got that from Sarah. And she, uh, she was like a sponge for information and she always remembered everything. Her name, let's put it this way. I noticed her a lot more than, than she thought I did. She was, you know, she didn't have to impress you about how smart she was, but she was. But the things you could tell was she loved the game. She loved contributing to it. And I got to tell you, the game's better having her in it, Buster. She's she's sharp, but she also understands the human element, and that's a great combination. All right, Sarah. So what was it like to watch a game with Buck Showalter? Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's so, so very kind. Thank you so much, and thank you to him uh, just for all of these words. I mean, just uh, – Really, really incredible. Uh, we all know, I mean, I, I feel like with Buck, I always think of Tim and how I feel like we would do those Baseball Tonight shows. Tim always had to step out and go chat with Buck about some, something. At some point, he seems to always need to, uh, you know, just have those conversations with him. So I always really associate Tim and Buck, and I love that about baseball. All right, Sarah. Uh, it's a travel day. Uh, it's crazy tomorrow, but we'll be talking to you. Sounds great. Can't wait. Before game four of the World Series, Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred sat down with Dan Schulman, myself, and had a conversation. Give a listen. 
Let's start right there. As Kevin said, if this is last year's format, the Philadelphia Phillies aren't even in the playoffs, and what a wonderful scene it was here last night. Uh, your thoughts just on what you saw last night here in this city? Well, you know, the ballpark last night here was as electric as I've ever seen anywhere, and I've been in a lot of ballparks. <laughs> uh, it was just a great scene. Uh, the city of Philadelphia has been absolutely phenomenal in terms of their support of the Phillies. Um, it, it, and exciting. I mean, it was really, really exciting here. How are you feeling about the format? As you know, you get Dodger fans, Braves fans, Mets fans unhappy with the way this played out this year. What- so, so here's what how I think about the format. We had in September weekend attendance that we have not seen since 2014. So what's that about? That's just more cities in the hunt. I mean, you know how great September baseball is, and we just had more of it, which is a huge positive. Look, I understand, you know, we had some very good teams that didn't come through, but the the fact of the matter is, upsets are a great thing in sports. Um, it, it, It generates excitement. I think what you're seeing here is a great example of it. So I'm all positive on the format. I know it's different. I know it's changed. It's always hard for baseball but um, I think it's really worked well. I'm with you 100%. If you knew who was going to win in advance, what's the point in playing, right? <laughs> right. So, but, but do you anticipate any possible tweaks or discussions about, you know, the lockout affected things this year, too? You won't right. have to deal with that. So do you anticipate any possible tweaks next year? Well, I, I'd say this. The, the days that the games fall on certainly, right. you know, is going to be an issue we're going to talk about. We originally wanted the three-game series to fall Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, we were pushed into the weekend because of the lockout. I have to tell you, we may talk about keeping that weekend. That weekend was pretty darn good. You know, I, I went to four games in two days. Um, the buzz surrounding that weekend was really great for us, so we'll be talking about that. And, and look, I mean, it, it wouldn't be baseball if we didn't have conversation about whether it needed to be tweaked, right? right. And I, I do think the issue you raised before, you know, some very good teams sat idle. Teams never like sitting idle in that first round, and it's something we're going to have to think about. So the question, I think, is always uh, in these situations, what's the working relationship between Major League Baseball and the Player Association? If you talk about tweaks going forward, where do you feel like that stands now? Well, I think we made a huge process improvement in in, in that regard. I mean, to have a joint committee that deals with potential rule changes within one calendar year is a major, major improvement for us. Um, In terms of the relationship, you know, look, I I, I met with – some small, some larger groups of players on every single team this year. Um, I think a good, better relationship it always begins with communication. I learned a lot. Um, I understand better, I think, um, some of their concerns, and, and uh, I think it'll lead to a more positive dialogue over time. Can you give me an example of a, a conversation you had with a player that stuck with you, something you learned? Yeah, uh, you, you know, I, I think that the way... Um, players think about rule changes. It, this was not one individual person. I mean, it came through a series of meetings and how um, unnerving the change can be for, from a player's perspective in terms of how he's going to perform and what the impact's going to be on his earnings. And I, I think it's something that um, having a better understanding of it is important in terms of trying to continue to produce change in a way that it's acceptable to the players. There, there are always things on your plate. Looking forward, you've got rule changes coming in next year. People always ask you about expansion or relocation, uh, yeah, uh, things like that. I'm sure you know, you've, you've talked about that a lot. But what are the things that we haven't touched on that are kind of on your radar over the next 6 to 12 months? Look, I think the biggest thing for our game right now is reach. Um, you know, because of the changes in the media environment, um, we're not in as many homes as we should be you know people cut the cord they don't have their rsns they may not have access to baseball and i think our number one priority is getting into more homes providing people who are outside the traditional bundle with a way that they can watch baseball as you unroll these uh and present these new rules for 2023 what's the process for that going to be yeah we have a pretty good um process internally that that we've been working on we you know the competition committee is chaired by john stanton um of the mariners he has shown real leadership in this area in terms of pushing the the agenda forward um i think that you will see uh a 
set of discussions throughout next year about potential changes. I will say this. We, we have an awful lot coming next year. You know, it, it took us a long time to get there. And I am of the view that, it, that there is um, something to be said, maybe not outcome determinative, but something to be said for let's digest all that we're doing next year and find out exactly where we are before we start talking about more change. And with this committee that has both uh, management and players on it, do you anticipate kind of a constant dialogue from that uh, that inner circle committee over the course of next season? I do, I do. And, you know, I've said this to players and, uh, the, and particularly the players involved. I hope that committee becomes a place where players and club people bring ideas that they talk about. I, I, I really, really hope it's not always a committee where, you know, we're looking to change X, Y, or Z and, and the players are reacting to it. I want it to be a process where everybody is bringing their ideas about how we can make the game better to the table. Among the rule changes, what's one that, in your mind, really going to help the product, the, the game of baseball? Look, I think the, the, the pitch clock is the biggest of the three that, that we have coming. Um, you know, I, I've seen games in, in minor league baseball. I'm sure you probably have as well. Um, I think it, it, it really does alter the pace of the game in terms of making the game more entertaining. Um, I, I think I recognize, however, and another thing you learn from talking to players, it, it's different at the big leagues. And, you know, I have a ton of faith in our umpires in terms of enforcing the pitch clock in a way that gives recognition to the fact that, you know, as I heard over and over again this summer, it's different in the big leagues. And uh, Last thing, uh, whoever wins the World Series here, we will not have a repeat champion. It's been years and years and years since there has been a repeat champion. How important is it to you that whether you want to call it competitive balance or just, you know, lots of different teams getting a chance to compete for the, the championship? Look, we, we sell competition. That, that, that's what you sell at the end of the day. And fans and markets have to believe they have a realistic opportunity to win. Um, I think in terms of our economic priorities, making sure that fans feel like their teams have a chance to win is always number one on our list. I think the only thing we can all agree on is the Philly Fanatic is the best mascot. Uh, <laughs> it is a great mascot. He, he, you know, he deserves a seat at the table with this committee. <laughs> yeah, right? That's right. A big seat, far away from everybody else. He does else. make the product more entertaining. He really we can does. agree on he that. He really okay. does. Thank you for doing this. It's we appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of the series. Nice to appreciate see you. It. you too. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher tweets for uh, Thursday. Bleacher tweets are brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper. The one fans deserve. I I'm going to throw you a curveball here, Buster. Our friend Alden Gonzalez was tweeting yesterday. Should he go to Pat's or Geno's? He was standing out in between them. I suggested, and I've done this before, you get in line, you get one. And you eat it while you're in line for the other one. And I'm just curious, did you have a cheesesteak during your time in Philly? Are you a cheesesteak guy? I'm curious. I do like cheesesteak. I have not gone and gotten to get a cheesesteak while we've been here. Eduardo Perez uh, offered up uh, cheesesteaks from the visiting clubhouse. Uh, he knows the attendant there for all of us in the booth. <laughs> and I passed on it. Mm, okay. I, I, you know, trying to... I'm just trying to keep, you know, the training regimen going through the World Series because you get to this time and you are totally gassed. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, the idea of putting a massive lump into my stomach, you know, an hour before a broadcast, not ideal. You're a smart guy, Buster. Uh, let's go to the tweets. <laughs> but I was bitter that is that everyone else around me was eating those wonderful <laughs> cheesesteaks. You're watching. I mean, you did it. It was the right move in the long run, but uh, I feel your pain, man. Feel your pain. Yeah. Let's do the tweets here. Michael Preston at McP1979 writes in, please tell me you don't believe a combined no-hitter should be celebrated like a proper no-hitter. One starter and three fresh relievers don't add up to one pitcher throwing all nine, does it? It, it is apples and oranges. There's no question. Uh, it's not the same. But I think when you evaluate that question that I mentioned to Sarah, and I'm so glad she put numbers behind it, from innings one through nine, as impressive I've seen from any team's pitching staff against especially this particular Phillies lineup in this moment. Mitchell at Tigers of Detroit writes in, based on both McCullers and Javier's last starts, do you think Javier would start a game seven or do you foresee a piggyback situation? Yeah, I agree with Jess. I just, I don't think there's any question. You have to start Javier in a game seven and Lance McCullers is an extra inning guy. 
Uh, like you're going to after Javier in a game seven situation, you're going to relievers before you go into Lance McCullers based on what we've seen. Last one for today. PK Steinberg writes in any known updates on what Harper's plan is for the offseason for that elbow. He's routinely bashing against teammates after home runs are hit. He's going to get surgery, right? Well, I think they're going to evaluate it. You know, now you know it's so funny because, you know, the type of injury he had 10 years ago, it was an, it would have been inevitable that he was going to have Tommy John surgery. It's not always. Uh, I'm sure the Phillies right now aren't even asking him how he's feeling with the elbow because they don't want to know. I don't think Bryce Harper would tell them exactly what he's feeling. I think in the offseason, uh, they probably will have a conversation and evaluate and see where they go because at some point with the type of injury that he has, unless he can heal on his own, he's uh, he's going to have surgery. Yeah, I know that he got hurt and it was like, oh, he might be out for the year. And it's like, oh, he just can't really throw the ball. Uh, so, yeah, I understand the, uh, you know, lack of conf- or the little bit of confusion there. But uh, that does it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter while you're watching the game tonight. And please follow, rate and review this podcast wherever you enjoy your podcast. Thanks, everyone. All right. That's it for today. My thanks to Jess, Sarah, Hembo, Sarah and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something that we need to fight against every single day. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.